Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Forward 40. So this guest, like most of my guests, was very surprised that I reached out to her, but I'm very excited to have her in the guest chair. Uh, her name is Jessica Huang, and she is a COVID-19 response and recovery fellow for the Bloomberg City Leadership Initiative at Harvard, and also a social entrepreneur. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. So you're our second uh, public health practitioner, which I'm very excited about, and I'm here for all of it. I feel like I'm learning so much of just about the, the sector uh, through through you. And your journey to getting a doctorate in public health, it wasn't linear, which for most of our, our lives and our journeys, it, it isn't, but rather aligned um, and, and, and rather strategic. Can you tell us more about your journey and like paint the picture for us? Like why public health? Sure, yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks so much for including different perspectives on a field that's as broad as public health. Um, it reminds me of what Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie says about the importance of making sure we don't just have a single story. Mm. Um, I also just want to say how intimidating and inspiring it is to follow all the incredible women you've interviewed so oh. far, public <laughs> health and other fields. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of a project I'm volunteering with now to help document the career stories of diverse professionals mm-hmm. um, so that youth from all backgrounds and with all kinds of passions and interests can imagine themselves in the jobs of their dreams. And yeah. to do that, I think we need to go way beyond a basic description of a professional discipline and explore people's unique stories. So thanks so much for including a second perspective on public health. And I hope there'll be so many more. Absolutely. Um, for me, I, I love this field of public health because it's about promoting the health and well-being across entire communities and populations. Uh, it's so important, the work that our frontline workers are doing now, doctors, nurses, EMTs, and more, um, in the way that they're so skilled at healing us as individuals. Uh, I think that when we're talking about health equity, we also need to look more broadly, right? Public health professionals ask questions that are not just about what's the best, best health care that science can offer to someone, but how do we make sure everyone has access to healthcare and address historical and current disparities in health outcomes? Um, this is so evident now and who's being left most at risk during our current pandemic yes. where not everyone has the same access to resources to cope. I personally came into it through a little bit of a different journey, as as you said. Um, I studied environmental engineering as an undergrad, and then I shifted into uh, environmental and health education, and now I'm fully in the space of, of public health. <laughs> it's really such a diverse field, right? You can you can work on health and well-being through fair housing, through sustainable transportation, yes. through energy, through food and water. And so in a way, it's it's so connected. But I should also just point out that, you know, while this sounds like it makes sense in retrospect, and it sounds like a clean pathway, like I should also 
have the courage to be vulnerable and sharing that it wasn't, it didn't make that much sense. Like while I was going through it, it was actually a pretty messy process where I sort of landed in public health eventually and realized like, ah, this is the field that kind of houses all my different interests. Um, So in retrospect, it it looks like it makes perfect sense, but it definitely didn't feel that way when I got here. (laughs) Yes. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Um, And I, I love that that engineering. I, f- I forgot. Like one of our other guests um, actually studied engineering as well, and then you know she's in advocacy work, um, in educational advocacy and, and equity work, and also has her own nonprofit focused on Black mothers and and their daughters. So again, very very interesting uh, the the connections, and I definitely wouldn't have uh, thought, especially when I was seeing peers of mine in college study engineering <laughs> that they would, you know, find kind of like their, their path, uh, to other disciplines. Um, so I, I appreciate you, um, speaking to that, that it's by far not linear. Um, and that the journey in itself, uh, is one that it, it requires a sense of vulnerability and also, um, giving yourself grace as well, um, as, as things, you know, shape and evolve. So when we spoke before, you know, um, uh, a bit of the, the work that kind of like led you to public health, even as, you know, you shifted to do environmental health and education, it was this sense of, you know, doing humanitarian work. And uh, right after your undergraduate studies, you co-founded a social enterprise that is now focused on water treatment in South Asia. So it's um, like the operations of, of the enterprise, as, as you shared with me, it has since shifted from its inception based on the priorities that you heard from community members. So what, I guess, internal and external factors signal this shift in the operations of the organization? And how was innovation furthered because of this shift? Sure. Yeah. So to to go way back in time, we actually started as an off-grid energy generation mm-hmm. social enterprise, um, and some of the communities that we were working with um, in in eastern India got hit by Cyclone Isla, uh, which really you know started to contaminate the water supplies. There were risks of cholera outbreaks, and it became clear in talking to community members that while they were very interested in our energy generation project, one of the things that they were most concerned about, one of the most immediate needs, was clean water provision. So mm-hmm. they actually asked us if that was something that we would be interested in working with them on. And we had on the back burner, um, as engineers and inventors who are always tinkering with ideas, we already had on the back burner some ideas in in water treatment. And so we actually shifted to that. Mm. Um, So we weren't even a water treatment uh, social enterprise to begin with. And um, I I guess another really major shift is as we were trying to think about ways to provide affordable, sustainable um, pathways to to clean water, to disinfected drinking water, um, we we really wanted to find ways to make this financially sustainable so that okay. they could 
these systems could last in the communities, right? Um, and one of the ideas that we had at the time was, oh, this is so great. We can support entrepreneurs in the community. Let's go with a micro franchise model uh, where we would be you know, bringing people on from the community who could use our water treatment technology and they could run small businesses in the community. Mm-hmm. Community members could like basically pay into the system. It would help to maintain it. Um, and the entrepreneurs could also be supported with some additional income. Mm-hmm. So sounded nice, um, you know, on, on paper. And actually, some organizations have managed to do this very well. So props to them for figuring out how to address this challenge. In our particular context, and with the way that our technology works, we did run into a few challenges. Um, one was that it just became clear that um, asking community members to pay for water, while many were happy to do it, it can be tough in a mm. place where there's limited stability and safety nets in some of these communities. For example, sometimes there's a drought and that really changes what you're able to provide in terms of regular payment. And we just really didn't want to be overburdening community members. So we mm. wanted to think through like how we we're going to be funding this. Mm. And then the other thing that we realized as we started to pilot this was that the the supplemental income was, was nice, it was helpful, and it did help create some work in the community, but it wasn't quite enough enough to support somebody full-time um and while it could be a nice supplemental income source especially for those who are already doing other work in the community for example like running a local shop um it it just wasn't enough to be like a full job at least we didn't want to charge community members too much that would make it enough for a full job um and we realized you know if somebody's doing this as one of their many many jobs it like changes how much time they can commit to it understandably so right so that just sort of shifted our whole model into now looking more at partnerships so instead we are focused on um selling these systems through local nonprofit non-governmental organizations that already work in these communities a lot of them actually are already investing in water provision such as by digging a well for example or, or building a rainwater harvesting system um, and they can add on our, our treatment system to ensure that that water is being disinfected as well and so that's a cost that they're able to build into their funding systems a little bit more easily it's usually just a fraction of the cost to make sure the water is also treated um, and that way we don't have to worry about um, all these concerns about not overburdening community members and um, and just making sure that we're supporting communities in the best way that we can. That is, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love that piece about not like ensuring that you're not overburdening community members. Um, and also like congratulations and, you know, cheers to being able to pivot, um, to be able to actively listen and then also come up with solutions that were meeting the need of the community but then also uh, connected to the initial vision uh, and mission of the the enterprise. Um, You know, there are some international uh, development aid workers that, you know, they find themselves towing this line between charity and saviordom, um, and they aren't really listening, right, to, to community members. What did you find to be helpful in your engagement with global communities, um, like even even if you're thinking back to like when you volunteered in in Ecuador, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like you know, like have you had any reflections on any of the parallels between engaging with global communities and the work that you're doing now uh, domestically? Sure. Yeah, this is such an important question. Thanks for raising it, and it's something that I still struggle with and I'm trying to learn how to do 
better. Um, but you're completely right. And I, I think that for me, one of the things that's been helpful to just constantly remind myself of are, of course, the need to, to be humble in this work and recognize how much we have to learn. Um, and that also we're just not the expert in, in what, you know, the communities that we're working with, um, what they experience uh, and what they know, the assets that they have access to. So when we listen, we actually make solutions better. Um, and I mean, I'll admit, I'm not even the expert in my own neighborhood when I do projects and volunteer work here, because it, like we said earlier, it's not just about a single story, right? I, it is so important to be listening to the perspectives of the people that we're working with and that we are trying to quote unquote help, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and I think it's absolutely about that. And it's much more about, you know, how can we support um, a community? How can we build capacity? How can we share resources? How can we elevate people's ideas and voices and co-design solutions that prioritize what people in the community care about? And mm. that is in no way ever like a one person job or an external job that's like always kind of rooted in how much we can make community driven. And I think that's true globally as well as um, here in the United States. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, um, I, I love the co-design solutions. Love it, love it, love it. Um, so, like, I guess honing more into the the domestic work right now. You know, as a COVID nineteen response and recovery fellow, um, you're currently working with the mayor's office um, on COVID nineteen recovery efforts. Tell us more about what you're working on, and also what you're learning from the data and, and, and the process? Sure. So um, as a public health professional, I'm supporting the development of city-level policies for economic response and recovery during the current pandemic, which is really interesting for me. I'm getting to work closely with economic development uh, researchers, with local business leaders, wow. um, really with, with people in this whole other field. Um, and the it's been such a great learning experience um, because there's such an intersection between public health and and how well our economy is doing, the health of our economies, right? And so it's been great to dive into that intersection mm-hmm. in terms of public health and economic economic data. Uh, it's It's been great to explore these interconnections when trying to use the latest research to inform evidence-based policymaking. And it can be so tough when the latest recommendations or guidelines are constantly changing. It's just the nature of responding to such a dynamic new challenge. We're talking about a disease that emerged like less than a year ago. Exactly, right? yeah. Um, yeah, and, and another thing that I'm learning in the process gets back at what we were discussing before, which is this importance of including diverse community stakeholders when we're trying to develop inclusive policies that are going to affect everybody's lives. Um, many places feel the need to be doing more community engagement. Um, it, it looks good these days, but it's it's much more than checking a box. It actually leads to better design policies. And the policies might also be implemented more effectively when there's community understanding and buy-in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I, the, not the check, not the checkbox, you know, like, um, it really, really has to be intentional. It really has to be a partnership that's just not, um, you know, like there's like an MOU <laughs> or so, you know, like just, just a contract that's, you know, drafted up, but really, really being in partnership and in relationship with the, the people, the community, the neighborhood um, that you are either operating in um, or you're working on behalf of. That's very, very key. And it, and it seems as though, like, isn't that, you know, just commonsensical? <laughs> um, but, 
but it, it, it isn't like, um, you know, for, I, I mean, I do feel like, um, certain industries, just as you were talking about the intersection between, you know, public health, economic development, um, I, I believe that industries and, and also, you know, people who are aspiring to just work in different spaces, serve in different spaces are seeing the interconnection. Um, the, the hope is, as you, um, even mentioned, you know, my hope is that, um, it's, it truly, truly is centered on, on equity and inclusion for sure. Um, and even if that means that, you know, to arrive at a policy recommendation takes time, Mm -hmm. that, that listening and that taking that time to build trust, uh, and relationship again is very, very key and vital. You put it so well. I mean, it, it, is I think hard for some people to put in that time sometimes, but it, it it's so worth it. It yes. really does make everything that we're doing better when we are able to invest the time to really listen to what yes. communities want. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've had some, you know, a shakeup in your life recently. <laughs> <laughs> um, you recently underwent, you know, corrective surgery for your arm. And I hope that you are healing well um, since the last time that we spoke. Um, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, it's a, you know, it's, it was an experience for you that, as you shared with me previously, you know, it gave you more perspective on issues related to ableism. Mm-hmm. And as, as you put it, it's a, a story in progress for you. So can you share more about what this is? experience has sparked for you and any additional elements of otherness that have come, you know, to the fore for you in in this recovery process? That's such a great question. And I I definitely will preface this with, it is a story in progress. I'm still learning so much about the world of ableism and what it's like for people who live with disabilities. Um, I mean, one of my first observations right after the injury and during this whole process of recovery and rehabilitation is just that our, our world doesn't have to be this way. Like our world could have been designed to be inclusive from the beginning. And then this whole um, condition that I had with my arm would not have been a dis- disabling one at all, right? Like if everything were designed where I could use one arm, um, I, I would actually not be faced with any disability in, in the activities that I tried to do. Um, and so it, it did bring to the fore this importance of inclusive design. And when we have everything designed um, primarily by by able-bodied people, it, it changes um it just changes what's available to people. And, wow. and unfortunately now we're, we're leaving people out that we didn't have to be leaving out. And so that's definitely something that I'm learning and, and trying to be more mindful of incorporating in my future work uh, is incorporating more of the perspectives of people with disabilities to make sure that we can design in a more inclusive way in the first place. Uh, I also, you know, I have to recognize how fortunate I am that my disability is temporary. Right. Uh, and also that I, had the opportunity to receive surgery um, and and recover from this. It's it's been an empathy. Um, it's been a great experience in empathy for me. Uh, but I definitely recognize that I don't understand the full spectrum um, of of what's out there in terms of experiences with disability. And I I just um, certainly you know my story is is just one within many across this whole spectrum. Um, 
and so many people live with disabilities that uh, are um, far more serious yes. uh, than mine. I also really love this um, framing that I've heard from some of my friends and colleagues uh, who identify with disabilities, hmm. and it's this idea of um, a disability gain, the idea that, um, you know, like I, I have to admit, you know, while I lost a lot of ability to do certain things uh, with one arm, I also gained a lot of resilience. I gained a lot of physical skills, actually, mm -hmm. in my and bouncing things um, and using my legs in creative ways like it it actually taught me a lot it, we can take a more um, I guess asset centered view sometimes not just focus on like what the challenges are but also the incredible wealth of assets that, that people with disabilities have um, who've really like learned and gained so much from their experience that we're not always valuing and and so to kind of shift um, shift how how we see people as well um, and and again like I don't claim to, um, I, I'm very new to this world of, of working with people with disabilities and, and coping with my own. And again, mine is just a temporary um, one arm <laughs> functionality loss. So uh, there's only so much I can speak to, but I, I really have appreciated this experience and empathy and it's still a story in progress. I really hope to just take this and learn how to do better in the future to include everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I, um, you know, it's when, when I, I believe just kind of like in more, the more general discourse, when we're um, speaking about disabilities, um, there's just a certain image that comes to our mind as, as a society, right? And the, the reason why I truly appreciate you sharing uh, your experience and just what the process has been for you to recover is that it could really be anyone that's, you know, um, operating in a certain level of ability. And then that shifts um, because of a circumstance um, or situation in their life. Um, and I, I love the point that you uh, that you raised. I was like, oh, wow, this uh, that was even like a, a check for myself um, that, you know, things are if able bodied people are designing things, then there are things that you are bound to miss because you're not operating with, or, you know, like no learning how to navigate and just like functioning with a, with a disability. Um, so again, just thank you for, even though you're on your journey and it's a story in progress. Um, I believe even what you share makes it, uh, that much more accessible for people to exercise empathy, especially in a time where um, other otherness is being impacted um, or exacerbated uh, during, you know, the the pandemic. So, thank you. No, thanks for uh, listening. <laughs> And also, uh, like <laughs> you and I were vibing just about. Um, the other things that may not, well, I, I'm quite sure there's been articles and stuff like that uh, that have been written about like, okay, well, what's like in terms of recovery, like COVID-19 recovery efforts, it's like, okay, what about the mental health <laughs> and, and wellness aspect of um, the, the toll that it's, that it's taking on people? And, um, you know, like myself, you tend to unplug and be mindful about what you're consuming um, and not necessarily staying um, staying up to date with the latest newsreel. Um, what have you been doing to hold yourself accountable uh, 
to wellness and, and self-love? Oh, such a great question. Um, yeah, I guess, first of all, to kind of connect this back to what we were just discussing, um, I should also clarify that while my disability, um, which is, again, temporary just from injury, is is physical in nature, that um, that what can be disabling to people um, can be around mental um or emotional uh, capabilities as well. And so this importance of taking care of ourselves like physically, mentally, emotionally is, is so important. And I'm really glad that you're raising this, especially in a world like what we live in today, where there's just constant, you know, bombardment with, with news that, yes. that can be so heartbreaking. Um, I, I definitely am still learning how to be better about holding myself accountable to wellness and self-love, uh, but probably actually the, the best reminder for me has been my husband mm. um because i know go husband <laughs> i know right i'm so so grateful um i'm sure he'll be happy when he's listening <laughs> Shout out to him. um when i'm not well rested i i notice that i definitely treat him worse and he doesn't deserve that nobody does <laughs> Really, no, it's, it's such a good reminder to try to take care of myself for myself, but also so that I can be my best self to others. Yes. Um, I, I think that like so many of us are are so motivated and the work that we do that we're like, oh, okay, it's okay if I'm not taking care of myself because I'm doing so much to support mm. others. Um, but I'm sort of coming to that realization of, well, actually, not only am I not taking care of myself, but it's really not sustainable. And I'm not my best self. I'm not able to bring my best self to others. So I'm trying to remind myself to sleep more, to take care of myself. And I, I hope you let yourself do that too. I know. I, I'm, I'm definitely, I already told you before we got out, like, I, I'm going to hold myself to getting more sleep. Um, and I, I, I will admit, yes, it, it, it is definitely a, a journey to care for our, you know, myself better, um, to, um, and, and in that care, that that is an act of love, right? Um, I know that I like, uh, I know a number of others. Um, it's like my mind just like races. I'm, I'm a visionary and, you know, like a creative person. So <laughs> it's like during the wee hours is like when creative ideas, it, there, there's really no time frame or time limit on when things um, come to me. So um but it's it's also just like a balancing act of just making sure that, you know, I'm well rested, um, also hydrated, like all of these things that when we're on the go, like I was just talking to someone the other day um, and she mentioned that, you know, since there is not really the commute time, we're not really allotting that time for us to reset. It's like we're going back to back to back to back to back. And um, we also have not extended, um, I would say more generally, um, we, we also have not extended that same kind of like window of like a grace period for people to, to reset. It's just like this assumption like, oh, well, you're home anyway, right? Oh, you're working from home. And not that that's the case for everyone, because of course, there are definitely frontline workers. There are people who, um, they, they need to operate their businesses, just like the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the businesses that you're, um, also learning from in, in your current work, uh, but I will also say that just more generally of the, it's like the benefit of working from home, but also when <laughs> it's now the condition that a good majority of people are in, we need to be more mindful of taking care of ourselves, but then also making sure we're taking care of 
each other um, collectively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but, yeah. Yes. Um, so, Jessica, I I thank you for just sharing more about your journey. Um, I again, I I love the the co-designing um, equity and inclusion piece for sure, and beyond. Um, like with race in mind, also with ableism in mind, and just um, it's it, again like the the intersection. I, I truly, truly appreciate it. Um, and you know that we close with the tea affirmation. So, what is your tea affirmation for our listeners? We can do so much more together than we can do alone. And <laughs> oh. um, working together, let's not forget to take care of each other. Okay, we can do so much more together than we can do alone. Okay, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Um, I thank you, thank you, thank you. How do people stay connected to you, to the work that you're doing? You you also mentioned um, this initiative that you're working on with, uh, is it younger professionals or, or youth? Like how do, how do people stay connected to, to the work that you're engaged in or um, any social media channels? Sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm still learning how to be more active um, on on social media. Uh, my my handle is at Jess Ann J E S S A N N Huang. My last name H U A N G. Uh, and yeah, I would be happy to share more about any of these projects. The project with the youth is called Inventing Heron, um, and I'm just a volunteer with them. Uh, but it's a great project, so I definitely. Oh, people- j- just a volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much for lending your voice to the platform. Thank you for making space for all these really important conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Until we connect again, sip, sis, say la, share, and continue to serve.